Patients with Hunter syndrome can now benefit from a new therapy. However, early diagnosis of this rare disease is not simple. Are there any new ways to diagnose children with Hunter syndrome at an earlier age? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Joseph Munzer, Professor of the Department of Pediatrics and Professor in the Department of Genetics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Munzer is recognized as one of the world's leading experts in Hunter syndrome research and the medical treatment of children with genetic lysosomal storage diseases such as Hunter syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Munzer. Thank you, Dr. Hill. It's my pleasure to talk about Hunter syndrome on ReachMD. Today we are discussing Hunter syndrome. Dr. Munzer, what is Hunter syndrome? Hunter syndrome is a lysosomal storage disorder where children are missing an enzyme involved in the breakdown or recycling of complex carbohydrates called glycosaminoglycans. And how does that present itself? Hunter syndrome presents that a variety of factors in virtually every organ system in the body can be involved, from developmental delay to joint involvement to cardiac issues to airway involvement and to generalized just stiff joints. Could you help us out a little bit with the pathogenesis of this disease? What happens when you have this enzymatic deficiency? So we all have something called lysosomes throughout the body, throughout the cells in the body. And these lysosomes are involved in recycling all sorts of material. In Hunter's disease and other mucopolysaccharidoses, an enzyme is missing, which normally would help break down these complex carbohydrates called glycosaminic glycans. And if the enzyme is missing, materials are stored within the lysosome. They eventually start to overflow and can kill the cell and result in multi-organ system involvement, depending on where the storage occurs throughout the body. Where do the storage problems exist the most? Well, the major organs that are affected are clearly the brain in a severe form, heart valves, particularly in a cardiac issue and airway issues, are really the life-threatening portions of it. But virtually every organ can be involved. Children early on can have hernias, can have joint involvement, can have enlargement in the liver or the spleen as presenting features. When was this first determined? So Hunter syndrome was recognized in 1916, 1917 by Canadian physician Dr. Hunter, but it's actually one of a number of mucopolysaccharidoses as we now sort of recognize a whole variety of different disorders. Hunter syndrome was also called MPS2. And MPS2 stands for? Mucopolysaccharidoses type 2. MPS2 is really a spectrum of severity from the very severely involved individual to individuals who have no neurological problems but significant physical problems called the attenuated form. How common is this? It's a very rare disorder. It's probably no more than 1 in 100,000 birth individuals have Hunter syndrome. It's an X-linked disorder, so only males are affected. And we don't see a carrier females have any symptoms in this particular X-linked disorder. So this is only in males? There is very rarely a female with Hunter for a completely different reason, but the vast majority of individuals are males. Can you make this diagnosis at birth? It's very unusual to make the diagnosis of Hunter syndrome or even the other MPSs at birth since they can look remarkably normal. Only with time, as the storage slowly accumulates, do you see the physical problems that are associated with Hunter syndrome or MPS2. 
How in 1917 did Dr. Hunter make this diagnosis when we really didn't understand the enzymatic processes and the mucopolysaccharide disorders? What he had is two brothers who had the physical symptoms of the Hunter syndrome. That they had short stature, they had large heads or macrocephaly, they have stiff joints, they had breathing problems, they had cardiac problems. So he basically described this disorder as Hunter syndrome, really not knowing what the cause was or that it really was an inborn error metabolism back then. And how did, in those days, these children get treated? So as you may imagine, historically, it was basically treating symptoms. All we could do is really sort of treat a problem that occurred. For example, if you had significant heart valve involvement, patients with attenuated forms of MPS2 you know, would be eligible for heart valve replacement, as anybody else would who had a damaged heart valve. And so it's really palliative treatment, symptomatic treatment, of whatever occurred in the population. Well, when do these children actually begin showing symptoms after birth? So again, there's a spectrum of severity from severe to attenuated, but the severe patients within the first one to two years of age now can develop some of the clinical signs that they may have umbilical hernias, ingual hernias, they can start having an enlarged tongue, they can start getting stiff joints, you may see enlargement of their liver and spleen, they could have some frequent breathing problems, and so it really occurs very early on, but there's a wide range of presentations, and so no two children really look identical, typically. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Joseph Munzer, professor of pediatrics and genetics at the University of North Carolina and a world-recognized expert in genetic lysosomal storage diseases, such as Hunter syndrome. Dr. Munzer, you spoke that the children may manifest early on with an umbilical hernia or an enlarged liver or spleen or an enlarged tongue or other presentations. Well, certainly when we hear hoofbeats, we don't think of zebras. How can you make the diagnosis of Hunter syndrome when there can be so many much more common causes of the hernias, the enlarged liver, the enlarged spleen? I think the key is that their clinical features, if they just had an isolated umbilical hernia or ingual hernia, it would be impossible, but these children have multi-system involvement. And so when the surgeon goes to repair that umbilical hernia, if they don't actually feel and determine the hepatomegaly, they'll never recognize it. And so it's really the constellation of multiple different organ systems that become involved that can allow the diagnosis to be made. Since this is so uncommon, can one expect the general practitioner or the pediatrician to really think about this diagnosis, or is this usually done upon referral? I think that's the challenge is that with now the onset of treatment availability to these patients, the earlier recognition is so important, but it's really the challenge for the primary care physician to try to recognize these disorders, especially when you have multiple systems involved, because again, an isolated umbilical hernia or an isolated stiff joint may not prompt a diagnosis, but when you Start thinking of multiple different systems, frequent ear infections, you know, airway problems, some developmental delay. Now one should really recognize this is more than the typical problem and should really prompt a referral to a geneticist. Now, years ago, what was the natural history of this disease? Well, the natural history prior to any treatment, in the severe form, these children were normal at birth. Over the first year or two, they started slowing down their development. By three to six years of age, they plateaued. 
and then they physically regressed both neurologically and physically in the severe form, died in their teenage years of a combination of neurologic, cardiac, and airway issues, and it was sometimes a very slow, progressive death. Now, do they have a particular physical appearance similar to other genetic diseases that we can recognize? Certainly in the later forms, yes. They have very coarse facial features they can have. They can have stiff joints. They can have macrocephaly. But early on, it's not as recognizable since these slowly accumulate over a number of months to years. I should say that when I get a referral for a new rule-out MPS in my genetics clinic, I can walk through the waiting room and pick out that new referral because they pretty are obvious to me. Having seen a lot of these patients, the typical physician may only see one or two in a lifetime of practice with MPS2. Well, that brings me to the next question. How many of these have actually been described? I'm aware probably in the U.S. of anywhere from 250 to maybe 500 patients with MPS2. And so worldwide, there may be you know, over 1,000 patients alive today with MPS2. And is their distribution related at all geographically? No, their distribution is really pan-ethnically. It's really it's an X-linked disorder, so it occurs in virtually any ethnic group. It clearly occurs across the country, and so there's no sort of ethnicity as we see for other genetic disorders in terms of Hunter syndrome. When did we specifically learn the exact etiology of this disease? So we recognize that in the early 70s, my mentor, Dr. Elizabeth Neufeld at the NIH, recognized that in Hunter syndrome and the other MPSs, there was a defect in the inability to break down these glycosaminoglycans. And then by a series of very clever experiments, she recognized that what was missing was an enzyme, initially called correction factors, which she and others went on to prove were the missing lysomal enzymes. And how did you personally get involved with this disease? As I joke with people, you know, MPS picked me. I didn't pick this disorder to study it. <laughs> As a fellow the NIH where Neufeld was, I was looking for a research project, having interest in continuing my research as part of my MD-PhD training, and I walked into her laboratory, and she said, why don't you start working on the Hunter enzyme, and the rest basically became history. I sort of got involved in both clinical and basic research as part of her exposure to the disorder. At your university, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, do you receive the most referrals from around the United States? can't say I receive the most, but I receive a lot of referrals in the last Two or three years as part of my work with clinical trials, I've probably seen over 125 to 150 individuals with Hunter syndrome, which may be a fourth to a third of the North American population. When the children get to you, sir, how far advanced is their disease usually? It really is across the board. It can be from individuals who are relatively early on in the progression and want to talk about some of the issues, or clearly I have local families that are profoundly impaired and I'm basically just managing symptomatically as the disease slowly takes its toll. Can this disease be diagnosed in utero? Prenatal diagnosis is clearly available for this and most of the other lysosomal storage diseases like MPS2. And so we can measure the enzyme either in amniocytes or typically chorionic villus biopsy. With molecular analysis available, that's another way to do prenatal diagnosis. So yes, prenatal diagnosis is available, but you have to know a family's at risk. Other than the family at risk, how would you even know that you should test for this? You wouldn't know to test for it unless you have a family at risk. This is an X-linked disorder, so clearly the, the mother may have had a brother with it or an uncle with it, and so it's important if you have a family history to recognize unexplained deaths or a death that somebody may call it an MPS disorder. 
it's not uncommon for me to hear that there had been a death of a previous sibling who died in the mom's side of the family who was diagnosed with Hurler syndrome, another form of MPS, which is not X-linked. And so it's important to take a good history and then suspect it. If you don't suspect it, you'll never make the diagnosis early on. I want to thank Dr. Joseph Munder, who has been our guest. We have been discussing Hunter syndrome. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Dr. Sarah Tomasello. I am a clinical associate professor at Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy in New Brunswick, New Jersey, as well as a clinical specialist in nephrology at the Robert Johnson University Hospital. You are listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, ReachMD XM157.